Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We continue with our staff spotlight this week, highlighting the intrepid members of our slush-reading team. This group of exceptional creatures are the gatekeepers of our submissions, searching to find only the tastiest, most gruesome morsels for us to feed into your ears. We've got four ghouls on our team, so, rather than rush things, I think we'll break it up over the next couple of episodes. First up is Morgan Payne. Morgan is dedicated to uplifting marginalized voices in horror fiction and has been running their blog, Diversity in Horror, for over five years. They've appeared on podcasts such as Progressively Horrified, Is It Transphobic, and contributed articles to Morbidly Beautiful. When they're not reading, writing, or watching horror, Morgan works at a hospital where they're the head of the LGBTQIA employee resource group. Morgan lives with their wife, three cats, four rats, and a very grumpy rabbit. A few fun facts about Morgan. They spent a summer studying with a Buddhist monk, are certified in scuba diving, and once dived on the Great Barrier Reef, and their office, fittingly, is right next to the morgue. 
Thanks for being part of the team, Morgan. Diversity is such an important thing to us here at Tales to Terrify, and your perspective and passion are so very appreciated. Check out Morgan's Diversity in Horror blog at the link in the show notes, or follow them on Twitter at Diversity Horror. Next up on our slush reading team is Brooke Brannon. Brooke's first appearance with Tales to Terrify was on episode 523 in February of 2022 with her story, The Family Business. But in addition to having a second story on the show not long after, not to mention one coming up in the near future, she's also stepped behind the curtain to help us out as a slush reader. Brooke is a pushcart-nominated American who lives in England with her partner Paul. Her work can be found in Tales to Terrify, The Chamber, The Disappointed Housewife, and soon, The Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. She holds an MFA with distinction from the Manchester Writing School. If you'd like to learn more, check out her website, brookbrannon.com, or follow her on Twitter at brookbrannon. What else should you know about Brooke? Well, for starters, she's always wanted to have a vestigial tail. She also lives in a place where the sheep outnumber the people, and Flan sets off her gag reflex. Good to know, Brooke. And thanks for all of the tailless, sheep-flocking, flan-gagging energy you bring to our team. Oh, and your passion and dedication to horror fiction, too. We're lucky to have you. Now, let's see what kind of twisted tales these ghastly gatekeepers let slip through the bars tonight. We have one tale for you this evening, which comes to us from Reese Hogan. Reese Hogan is a transmask science fiction author from New Mexico. He has published three novels, and the latest, Shrouded Loyalties from Angry Robot, was a best sci-fi fantasy pick of August 2019 by both Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Hogan's next book, a near-future AI thriller called My Heart is Human, will be published in the fall of 2023. His short fiction has been published in The Decameron Project, A Coup of Owls, and Clockwork, Curses, and Coal. Children of the Night, join me for Reese Hogan's Deprivation, a Tales to Terrify original. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Paranoia is an army of shadows. The words come out barely legible, half scrawled off the line. I've barely finished writing them when the notebook is pulled from my lap. I jerk my head up. Sheila, in the front seat of the truck's passenger side, is staring at what I've written. What's going on here, Dean? She says, raising an eyebrow. Before I can answer, she elbows the guy in the driver's seat. Hey, Carl, your cousin's either a poet or the lead singer of a metal band. Yeah, Carl says with a laugh. You writing a ballad back there, Dean? Yeah, a love song, I say, for Professor Green. I almost wince at my choice of words. God, I hope that came off as casual. Who? Psych, Professor. It's a spring break assignment. Well, read it, Carl says, nodding encouragingly to Sheila. She does, giving the line a needlessly dramatic emphasis, I lean forward and snatch the notebook back. Don't get excited, I say. It's just an essay. An essay about what? We're supposed to write about our greatest fear, I say. But write it in a way others can understand it. He says that'll allow us to see it's all in our heads. The truck hits a bump in the dirt road. My pencil goes flying. God damn it. I scan the darkening interior as the truck tilts, going down something far too steep for comfort. My heart rate picks up as I picture us tipping, sliding. I force the thoughts back, remembering what Professor Green always says, overanalyzing is overreacting. So, paranoia is your greatest fear? Carl says. I don't get it. And what is this army of shadows stuff? Sheila breaks in. Pick something everyone relates to, like, I don't know. She holds up a finger, suddenly inspired. Paranoia is being dead with everyone dead around you. Alive, I correct. My hand is under my seat now, groping over food crumbs and grit. Paranoia is being alive. There's a beat of silence. Then they both burst out laughing. My cheek twitches in amusement as my finger finally brushes the missing pencil. Paranoia is college, Sheila says, bumping against Carl playfully. Paranoia is nerdy cousins, says Carl, raising his voice. Paranoia is your signal crapping out, Sheila adds, when you don't know where the hell you are. That sends them laughing even harder. But I stare at Sheila, my pencil frozen in my hand. Wait, I say, are we lost? Relax, poet boy, says Carl. I've been all over these mountains, and there's not a damn thing here that could surprise me. Just 
Enjoy yourself, huh? Maybe he's right. Good old Carl and his constantly changing stream of girlfriends should know. When he'd originally invited me on this camping trip, there'd been no mention of a girl tagging along, which probably would have tipped the balance to whether I came. But Professor Green told us to push our boundaries. He'd come back from winter break a few weeks earlier, energized with a revelation of his own. He'd traded his first name for Evan and his former female's body for a male's. Two classmates had walked out on the spot. But it had been eye-opening to me, a spit in the face of that constant paranoia. Do something that scares you, Professor Green had said. His eyes had caught on mine. I'd sworn something passed between us. And then write about it. I bring my pencil back to my paper. Paranoia is sunset on an empty forest road. Carl slams on the brakes. The pencil tip snaps as my body lurches forward. My face slams into the headrest in front of me. Jesus, Carl! Sheila gasps. What the hell is that? Carl says, his voice breathless with awe. He opens his door. The aroma of moist soil and pine trees floods the truck. I put my notebook down and join Carl and Sheila outside. It's a house, or maybe mansion is a better word. The front entrance is framed by massive columns dripping with ivy. A spiraling staircase spins off to my right, disappearing into a turret so high I have to crane my neck to see it. To the left is a door that would open straight out into open air seven or so stories up. Sand is piled in dunes against the base of the mansion, so it almost looks like the building has pushed its way up through the earth. Or maybe it's sinking down into it. This is new, Carl murmurs. I frown, eyeing the collecting sand. Can't be. Trust me, he insists. I know this area. This must have been built within the last few months. He turns, grabbing Sheila's hand. Come on, let's check it out. My eyes widen. Carl, this belongs to someone. We can't just go in. Do you see any cars? Whoever owns this isn't using it. What's the problem? Hey, Sheila says, winking at me. Paranoia is mysteriously appearing houses. Am I right? Paranoia is hantavirus and trespassing fines, I say tightly. Sheila smirks. So do what your Professor Green said. Sit in the truck and write an essay about being afraid of mouse shit. But we're going in. She starts toward the front door. Professor Green, would he approve? He said face our fears, not break the goddamn law. So many things could happen. Old floors could cave in, the ceiling could fall, we could fall. I stop the thoughts. Overanalyzing is overreacting. Once I believe that, the paranoia will be gone. The door is locked, but Carl, good old Carl, has a crowbar in his trunk. Sheila grabs beers while we're waiting. I feel her eyes on me as I pop the tab. I've never been one to submit to peer pressure, which is why this whole thing feels ridiculous. It's not Carl that talked me into this. It's more of a morbid curiosity about myself and the lengths I'm willing to go. I'm halfway through my can by the time he pries the door open. 
It swings inward with a hollow creak. We pause, waiting for bats or spiders to pour out. When none do, Carl flashes a grin back in the fading light and thumbs on his phone's flashlight. You ready for this, or should I find a bandana for you to tie around your face first, Dean? Like a bandit, I say dryly. Appropriate. I step up, drawn despite myself toward the darkness inside. Paranoia is an army of shadows. Abruptly, I can't think of a better test to prove myself to Professor Green. I pull out my phone and flip to the camera. Might as well go for extra credit, huh? I quip. Carl snickers and gestures me forward. I push open the door and step over the threshold. I enter a massive entryway with black tiles spiraling out under my feet. A glass table sits in the center. Its support pillars are shaped like hands gripping the edges of the glass. A staircase toward the back stretches up into blackness. Sand clumps in the corners and makes a fine dust on the floor, giving the whole area a soft, rounded feel. A feeling of being very abandoned. And regardless of what Carl thinks, very old. My attention is drawn to a statue on my right. Sand skids beneath my sneakers as I drift toward it for a closer look. It's about my height, human-shaped, made from a beige, waxy material. I can barely make out indentations of a nose and ears, and the eyes, they're gone completely. Only sand dusts its empty eye sockets. The hell? Carl says, coming up beside me and taking a long pull on his beer. Is that supposed to be art? My gaze goes to its hands. One of them is held out before it, fingers spread. The other points toward the staircase across the room. Does art tell you to go deeper into strange houses, I say, jerking my chin toward the pointing finger. If you position it that way, it does, Carl says, unfazed. He finishes his beer, then grabs another. Hey, get a picture of me and Sheila with this, huh? For your extra credit. He beckons Sheila over. She comes, and I'm relieved to see that she, at least, looks a bit uneasy. I think Carl might put an arm around the statue or something, but he just kisses her next to it, so I snap the picture. Afterward, he lets go of Sheila and starts toward the staircase. Sheila lets out a disbelieving laugh. You're not going up, are you? Carl looks back, his brow furrowed. Why wouldn't I? Simultaneously, Sheila and I turn to look at the statue. Carl laughs. Seriously? We go through all the trouble of breaking in and you want to stop in the entryway because of a statue? I open my mouth to answer and have nothing. He's right. What is there to overanalyze here? That it might come to life? That somebody came and set these up to lure unwitting vagrants somewhere deep in the house? It's a weird-ass piece of art, to be sure, but in the end, it is just that. Art. I turn back to the statue, taking a deep breath. Then, stealing myself, I raise my hand and place it against the outstretched hand of the statues. Sheila gasps, and even Carl lets out a sudden noise of surprise. 
The surface of the hand is cold, a bit gritty, and completely unresponsive. Experimentally, I entwine my fingers with it, but it remains as stiff as hardened wax. Dean? Sheila says in a small voice. Paranoia is the possibility that anything might happen, I think. But nothing does. Paranoia is a state of mind, an army of shadows. It's not real. I let go and turn around. Carl is right, it's just a statue. After a moment, Sheila nods, her face noticeably relaxed. I smile, strangely exhilarated. Do something that scares you. Maybe Professor Green was on to something after all. The stairwell darkens as we ascend. The stairs creak under our feet. Carl and Sheila whisper indistinctly at first, but gradually their voices die off. Peeling wallpaper surrounds us, faded pink, pictures of rocking chairs and teddy bears. It would be cute in a baby's nursery, but it's an odd choice for the master stairwell of a mansion. The stairwells don't connect, and we're forced to traverse each floor's hallway to find the next branch. I flick on my flashlight as it gets darker. Sheila's left her phone in the truck, so she sticks close to Carl. A shape materializes near the end of the hall on the second floor, hunched like a gargoyle. I let out a yell before I can help myself, but it's just a colorful striped umbrella lying open on the floor. Carl snorts with laughter. I hope you're documenting all this for Professor Green. I look at him, my breath catching. He raises an eyebrow and maintains eye contact as he takes another drink. Got something to say, Carl? I ask. He waves his can dismissively. I think it's great you're taking the assignment so seriously, poet boy, that's all. Facing your fears for him and all that. I hope he notices. I really do. He starts forward again, heading for the next flight of stairs. Sheila hangs back a second, watching me. Is he calling me a teacher's pet? I ask her. She hesitates. I think he's saying you have a thing for him. I let out my breath with a quiet laugh. Right, he would. Do you? She says curiously. I'm reminded again of why I wouldn't have come if I'd known Carl was bringing a girl. I curl my lip and take another swallow of beer. It's nice to feel its liquid chill on my tongue instead of the pervasive grit of sand dusting every corner of this place. By the time I've pulled the can down, Sheila has taken the hint and moved on. I hear their faint whispers ahead. I follow them up the stairs. Sand grains seem to trail me in a gently spinning swirl. It reminds me that we left the front door open on the bottom level. It must be letting in the wind. I think of going back to close it, but I'm not about to give Carl the opportunity to call me a coward, so I keep heading up. As I step off the third floor landing, another of those eyeless statues greets me, pointing a finger toward the next level up. I step around it, scanning the huge kitchen that spans half the floor. Carl? I call. Sheila? Mouse droppings, Carl says, coming out from behind an oversized counter. And a couple more statues. Someone put a lot of effort into the pointing thing. Wants them to lead somewhere. Or at least seem like they are, Sheila adds. 
there's that chill across my spine again, the jitter of paranoia. I wonder for a second whether Professor Green meant us to take his assignment so literally. I take a couple more pictures just for the excuse of looking interested instead of shaken. Carl and Sheila are already heading up the next flight. The desire to leave the house is palpable now, like an itch between my shoulder blades, but I push the feeling back. Overanalyzing is overreacting, and instead think what a fantastic essay this will make when I write it. Five stories up. There's another statue in the hall, this one crouched and staring. Its eye sockets are empty, its face falling away like a burning candle frozen in time. It's not until I kneel to look closer that I see one of the fallen eyeballs half sunken into its cheek, and the other congealing on the gritty floor. Sand clumps in its eye sockets. The hands have fingers with long nails sharpened to a point. One of them, naturally, is pointed up toward the next level. Carl tosses aside his empty can and I hear him crack open yet another one. I squint back at him, but he's holding his light up and I can't see his face. How many of you had, I say. He lets out a short laugh, with just a tinge of annoyance. Really, Dean? I raise my hands in surrender as I push myself to my feet. Have we seen enough yet? We still need to find a camping spot, you know. Nah, let's keep on, Carl says. Be ashamed to come this far and not find out what these statues are pointing at, huh? I catch Sheila's eye. She's biting her lip, but she gives a slight shrug so we follow Carl up the next flight. Seventh floor. The last three steps before the landing have dunes of sand so deep I have to kick some off before my feet find a grip. I put my empty beer can down so I can help Carl over. We encounter another statue just a few steps past the staircase. But this one is different. Instead of pointing toward the next staircase, it points to its right down the long hallway toward the opposite end of the house. Carl stares at it, a grin slowly spreading across his face. End game, he whispers. He starts heading down the hall. I grab his arm. Carl, I say under my breath, are you sure? He pauses, looking back and forth between me and Sheila. What's the problem, poet boy? It's weird, Sheila says. Even you have to see that, like, really weird, Carl. Yeah, I know, he says, his voice slow and deliberate. That's why I want to see it. He shakes my hand off and heads down the hall, beer in hand. Sheila and I look at each other. If we go back down, he'll follow, Sheila says. I'm sure of it. I let my breath out. Tempting, but I can't just leave him. What do you think we'll find? Honestly, I close my eyes for a second. I'm worried about a room full of dismembered body parts or maybe a serial killer lying in wait. I, I don't know. A look of terror flashes across her face, and I regret speaking my paranoid thoughts aloud. I'm sorry, I say. I'm sure I'm overanalyzing. I always do. That's why I'm writing this essay, because my imagination just gives me shit like that and I'm trying to get control over it. 
She hesitates, then reaches over and grabs my hand. Just stay close to us, promise? I blink in surprise, but tighten my hand around hers in reassurance. No problem. I swear I can hear those whispers again as we follow Carl's light down the dark hall, the same ones I heard earlier when Carl and Sheila went ahead of me. Weird. There's almost a rhythm to them, as if from an old grandfather clock trapped in some boarded-off room. We pass two more statues, pointing the same direction. I speed up so we can walk with Carl again. He glances back. His gaze lingers on our hands, but he either doesn't feel threatened or doesn't care, because he turns forward again. The next statue is pointing back toward us. We slow to a stop. No, not at us. At the door behind us. Carl immediately reaches for the doorknob, but I hold a hand out blocking his way. Wait, I say. Look at the colors. The scroll work on it. His eyes run down the black and gray patterns decorating the floor. Yeah, so? It's the door we saw from outside, I say. The one that opens out into nothing. Comprehension dawns on his face. All right, let's open it. I let go of Sheila's hand and push him back firmly. I'll do it. I don't want you anywhere near a seven-story ledge right now. I expect him to fight or tease me again, but he just looks at me with this hurt expression, like I've kicked him and he doesn't know how to respond. I turn back to the door, irritated with myself for feeling bad. I twist the doorknob and pull. The door doesn't budge until the third yank. Six more heaves, and it finally gives. Sand pours out, spilling over my feet and legs with a soft shush. It would have pushed me over if not for Sheila grabbing my arm. My breath catches as I shine my light into the room. Gentle dunes of sand turn what was formerly a bedroom into a stunning desert mirage. The sand piles up highest at the other end, reaching the ceiling in the far corner. It cascades gradually down, almost covering an upholstered armchair and part of a dresser, but barely brushing the base of a canopied bed closer to us. By the time it reaches our doorway, it's knee-deep. Some unseen breeze catches it as I watch, filling the air with particles of grit that flash in our light beams. If I didn't know better, Sheila says in a hushed voice, I'd think this was where all the sand was coming from. I work my feet free of the deep sand, then step cautiously into the doorway. I shine my light up, looking for some hole it could have gotten in through, some open window. I see only dusty ceiling tiles and that pink wallpaper. Not even a window looks into this room. Clearly, it's not the one I saw from outside. We're in the middle of a forest, I say faintly. How, just, how? What's even weirder? Carl says in a strangled voice, is the statues. My head jerks around, my gaze shooting straight to where the closest statue was. But there's nothing there. My heart stops. Where'd it go? Carl's staring at the floor. He flutters his fingers down without looking up at me. Turn to sand, 
right when you open that door. My gaze drops to the pile of sand now blending in with the cascade that swooped down from the bedroom. I scan the hallway and see telltale piles of sand leading back the way we came. New sand dunes dotting the hall, each one where a statue once stood. My hair stands on end. What spin would Professor Green put on this? Just an old house with dust problems? Eclectic art? No, this is... Please, Sheila says, her voice shaking. We can go now, right? Carl is deathly pale. He nods. I grab his hand this time and steer us back toward the stairwell, my heart hammering. I can't shake the feeling that when we opened that door and those statues dissolved, something happened. I don't know what, but I'm creeped the hell out and I'm having a hard time holding on to Professor Green's words right now, but I try. Overanalyzing is overreacting. There is an explanation. Maybe he can help me find it. I'll call him, I decide, as soon as I get out of here. We don't talk on the way back down. Our silence amplifies the sound of the sand grains shushing against the faded wallpaper around us. That and those strange whispers coming from the wall. There's no denying them now that both Sheila and Carl are with me. Carl's phone dies first, and his flashlight with it. We've only come one level down by then, maybe two, and it freezes us in our tracks. I check my own battery. It's just a red sliver in the corner of my screen. God damn it, I whisper. Stay close. It should be plenty to get us down the stairs and out, but as I said, those stairways don't always connect. Furthermore, the sand under our feet is noticeably deeper now that the statues have collapsed. Our feet sink with every step, making our progress sluggish. I can feel time bleeding away. I can feel the night falling deeper outside the house until it envelops us. I swear I can feel it in my eyes. Or maybe it's just the grittiness of the sand digging beneath my eyelids. That itch between my shoulder blades just gets worse as we find ourselves passing rooms with cribs and rocking chairs and teddy bears to match the pink wallpaper. Bathrooms with clawfoot tubs, wheelchairs stuck in the sand. Rooms I'm sure we didn't pass on the way up. Faintly, I can hear the sound of the wind outside the walls, its howl like a faint scream. Dean, you can get us out, right? Sheila's voice sounds far away. I blink, only now realizing I'd pause to listen to those whispers in the walls, listening to the rhythm in them. Tick, tock, tick. I shake my head, clearing the cobwebs. Sheila is staring at me, and I realize how exhausted she looks. Carl, beside her, looks even worse. This is ridiculous. It can't be that late. I pull up my phone to check the time, but before I can focus on it, the battery dies. We're plunged into darkness. Sheila lets out a cry. My hand shoots up, gripping her arm. Dean, Carl says, his voice alarmed. I stuff my phone into my jeans pocket and grab his arm with my other hand. 
When the hell did I become the leader of this expedition? Damn Carl, damn his girlfriends, damn his crazy-ass ideas and his beer. Just damn everything. I wish Professor Green were here. If something was going to happen, I finally say. It would have by now. We're not going to overanalyze this, okay? We'll just keep going down. It'll take a while, but we'll get there. You hear me? Okay, Sheila says after a moment. Yeah, man, Carl says. No over, overanalyzing. We continue down. I try to keep up a conversation at first but the house swallows my voice as if we're out in some vast expanse of desert rather than enclosed in a building's walls. Carl and Sheila's answers are monosyllabic at best, their voices slurring with either alcohol or fatigue. Eventually, I stop trying. It's all too weird and I can't focus. I fight the pull of my eyelids as the stairs go on and on. I keep my hands in theirs, but more than once we lose our footing in the dark. I picture the sand collecting beneath our feet, the eyeless statues closing in on us in the dark. I hear the ticking through the walls again. I'm going crazy. None of this is real, and even their hands. But then I'm pulling us outside, and the fresh air on my face is a reminder of reality again. Somewhere in the distance, a helicopter's blades beat, and it's such a normal outdoor sound that I almost cry out with relief. That is not the sun rising, says Carl, blinking blearily toward the east. Is it? I dig my palms into my eye sockets. Can't be. No way we were in there all night. What just happened? Sheila murmurs. Let's just get the hell out of here. Carl says. He tosses me his keys. Hero of the hour, Dean. I'd probably crash us into a tree right now. You got it, I say. We climb into the truck. Sheila sits in the back seat, leaning her head against the window and closing her eyes. Carl gets in the passenger seat. I start the car and plug in my phone to charge, then run the windshield wipers to smear away the sand that's accumulated on the glass. I peer through it at the huge mansion in the gray morning shadows. I see that door again, the one that's set straight into the wall. I try to count the levels, and sure enough, it has to be seven. It's in there somewhere, but it's not the one I opened. Carl yawns, his head dropping back against the headrest. Wake me if you need anything, he mumbles. Will do, I say. I glance into the rearview mirror as I get ready to pull out. I see sand piled in the back seat. I freeze, then whip my head around to look. Sand, just sand, no Sheila. With a strangled gasp, I turn toward Carl. His eyes have just drifted closed. I'm still looking at him when his body dissolves into a million grains of sand spilling across the passenger seat and onto the floor. I must have dug frantically through the sand, looking for any trace of him, 
I must have done the same in the back. I must have, because as I clutched the steering wheel of the truck and pressed the gas pedal to the floor, both Sheila's striped tank top and Carl's t-shirt are in my lap, caked in sand. My hands around the wheel are slippery with countless grains of it, and it clumps in my hair and on my face. I reach the road as the sun first hits the treetops. I peel out as I hit the asphalt, turning without stopping, pressing the gas pedal farther down still. Overanalyzing, overreacting, hallucinating. I must be, because my eyes couldn't possibly still be fighting this fatigue after what just happened. It's like those dreams where even in your head, you're so tired you can't properly function. They'll give me a hard time about this when I wake up, say I can't hold my alcohol, I'll laugh with them, paranoia does strange things to your head. Paranoia is mysteriously appearing houses, am I right? God, I think I'm going to throw up. I jump as my phone dings with a new text message. I have a signal again. I don't let up on the accelerator as I shake off the sand that used to be him and glance at the screen. Another text follows the first, then another, until my home screen is a wall of words. I catch only snippets of sentences. Nothing but sand. Calling it a pandemic. Too late for... Haven't heard from her. My breath coming short, I keep half an eye on the road as I thumb through my contacts list. There, Professor Green's cell phone number, freely given to the students. Do something that scares you, I think as I press the call button and put the phone to my ear. Then write about it. I almost laugh. It rings once, twice. My eyes scan the road as I drive. Sand beats against the glass as the countryside flies by. The pine trees, nothing but green blurs in my peripheral vision. I know there was a town, a sizable one on our way in. Hi, you've reached Evan Green, psychology and counseling professor. I yank the phone from my ear and disconnect the call. Should I dial 911, tell them about the house, the statues? God, what were those statues? They were leading us up to that door, that door with all the goddamn sand behind it. We let something out, I think. Out of that room and then right out that open front door. Were those statues part of the being? Is that why they dissolved when we released it? I realize I'm whimpering under my breath. I clamp my teeth shut and hit Professor Green's name again. A house flashes by, then another, then a handful of them. I'm hitting the outskirts of the community we drove through. I slam my brakes at a stoplight that seems to come out of nowhere. My tires screech and the stench of burning rubber fills the truck. Smoke rises from the highway. Hi, you've reached Evan Green. I disconnect again. Sand blows through the town, rattling on the glass windows of the storefronts and houses. I throw the truck into park, then open the door and slide my feet to the ground. Leaving the truck running behind me, I approach the nearest house. I cup my hands to the closest window without letting go of my phone. The bed inside looks like the ones in the mansion. Sand strewn across pillows and spilling onto the floor. My stomach turns over, sending a wave of nausea through me. 
I run to the next house, then the next, peering through windows until I find the bedrooms. Sand, almost always in the beds, but sometimes in rocking chairs or on couches or... My steps slow as I round a corner and see a pair of cars. Their front ends are smashed together. The door to one has been thrown open and the seats inside are empty. The other one. I bend down to look in. There's sand across the driver's seat, the dash, the steering wheel. Like Carl. The fingers of my empty hands spasm against the glass. My phone breaks into the opening chords of Love Like Winter as a call comes in. I cry out, putting it to my ear. Professor Green, I say. Yes, who's this? It's Dean, Dean Collins, from... I close my eyes, trying to still the dizziness that's suddenly overtaken me. I'm so damn tired. Psych class, yes, he breaks in, his voice rough. Dean, listen, you've heard not to fall asleep, right? My stomach churns. Hearing this confirmation of my fears is almost more than I can take. Sir, I have to tell you something, I force out. Call me Evan, and what is it? Is it related to this sand? Yes, I say, it is. There was this house, and my cousin, he, he said he'd never seen it before, that it had just appeared there, but we went in anyway, we left the door open, and it was filled with sand and these weird statues, but then, then there was this door... I'm semi-aware that my explanation is borderline incomprehensible, but I can't think of the words that will make it better. My forehead is leaning against the window of the car, and for a second I just stare at the sand inside, thinking about Carl. Why the hell didn't he listen to us when we wanted to leave? Dean? Evan's voice sounds far away. Dean! I suddenly realize I can still hear those whispers from the house, thrumming rhythmically through the air. I look up, scanning the empty street. Why can't I focus? Why can't I think? I shouldn't be this tired. I've only gone one night without sleep. Right? Dean! shouts Evan. Are you there? I'm here, I finally manage. Are you saying you might know something about what's happening? Yes, I... I think so. Where are you? About two hours north. I can come to the school if you wait. Do you need someone to come get you? He says. No, I can make it. I hang up and stagger back to Carl's truck. My phone rings again, but the sound is distant this time. Almost unreal. My body shakes. My eyes burn. I can't remember ever having been this tired. By the time I park in front of the university, I can barely keep my eyes open. The beating of helicopter blades is audible overhead. Red and blue lights strobe through the parking lot from an ambulance smashed into a signpost on the street. Sand pours from its open door. There's sand on the sidewalk, the grass lawns, the stairs leading up to the university's double doors. No longer confined to beds, I think. People are fighting it, but they're losing. This isn't an enemy you can beat.
I stumble from the truck. Evan rushes out from the university. His eyes are bloodshot, his tie askew, his hairless face haggard. Another teacher I vaguely recognize trails him, nose in her tablet. When Evan reaches me, he grabs me by the shoulders. A house, you said, filled with sand. My memories are scattered remnants. I try to piece them together, but all I can think about is lying down and going to sleep and never waking up again. I'm so glad you're okay, I say, blinking back a sudden stinging in my eyes. For a minute, I think he's going to hit me for not answering. Then he suddenly pulls me into a fierce hug instead. I feel myself relaxing. The adrenaline of the night is wearing off, and the simple comfort of being here with Evan is enough. But then he's pushing me away, his hand tight around my arm. Tell me about this house, he says, everything you can remember. I struggle to sort through my hazy memories. It had a door. All the statues were pointing toward it. We opened it and it was sand everywhere. And the statues, when I opened it, they... I trail off as I see a man slumped on the university stairs, fighting a drooping head. Seconds later, sand spills down the steps in a cascade. There's almost something soothing about the sweep of the grains and the way they so perfectly enveloped this single life in the blink of an eye. I can hear the whispers again, maybe even coming from the grains themselves. Tick, talk, tick. Dean, for God's sake, open your eyes. I'm fine, I say, jerking my head up. I don't know what Evan is freaking out about. I've been looking at him the whole time, but he's staring at me with this mixture of fear and worry I've never seen before. A single clear memory surfaces. It was right after the statues dissolved, and I'd decided to call Evan because he'd know what to do. Evan, who knows that overanalyzing is overreacting and that we can erase the curse of paranoia by not overthinking everything. Maybe he was right. I'm with him now, and for the first time, maybe the first time ever, the paranoia fails to overwhelm me. Maybe if we don't overthink this, maybe if we get a full meal, a good night's sleep, some coffee then maybe this will all make sense in the morning. That was Reese Hogan's Deprivation is read by Andrew Gibson. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming. He remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or, for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in the Narrator Nook and The Haven Discord servers. Links are in the show notes.
Thank you, Andrew. Well, children of the night. The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Orion D. Hegre, Paul Belcher, Amanda Gottfried, and Kathy Robinson, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we descend into the abyss for more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 